Excellent singing. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we'll be reading in a few moments from verse 33, starting in verse 33. We've been continuing our look through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, along the way, there's been some interesting topics, and this is another one that's uh, interesting. And I hope that uh, it'll be encouragement to you and a blessing to you as, as I share. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be at. This week, uh, my family and I had an opportunity to go to Shipshawana. Now, some of you would be like, that's not an opportunity. Um, but uh, it's something that uh, my, my wife enjoys, and I enjoy making my wife happy. So um, I, we, I went along, and uh, um, everyone in my family got something but myself. I should say, uh, that's not true. I got food. That's all I need. And I'm happy. So, but uh, as you, if you've been to Shipshawana before, uh, as you're driving there and as you're driving away, you see a number of uh, Amish buggies going along the road, um, and uh, it's always interesting to see them. Um, I can say this: as you go flying past one, you realize that Amish buggies probably don't have speedometers. Never been in one, so I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they do, but I don't think they have speedometers. You say, well, how do they know if they're breaking the law? Well, I don't think you can really speed, depending on the speed limit, in a buggy. And so it's not necessary. You always know that if you're in one of those, that you're meeting the demands of the law. Amish buggies don't have radar detectors. When they see, you know, Amish families riding along the road and they see a police car behind them turning on its lights, they don't go, Oh, I hope that's not for me. Or, or oh man, I wonder how fast it was going. They don't think about those things. Why? Because that's not uh, the way that they live. The point I'm trying to make is this. Is they're built to live above the demands of the law so they never have to worry about breaking them. We've been looking at Matthew, and we've been focusing on this verse where he says, Jesus is saying, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the purposes Jesus had for teaching this message, Sermon on Mount, was not to create Amish people, but to call all of us to live so far above the demands of the law that we don't have to wonder if we're, if we're obeying the standard. He's trying to build a people who live a radically different way and live by a radically different standard. The Old Testament taught all these laws and the, and the Jews had gotten, man, they had gotten very gifted, very talented at meeting the letter of the law. And what Jesus is trying to tell to them, to say to them is, I want you to live above the law. And so he begins teaching a new radical standard. Later on in Luke, he would, he would say this, he would say, uh, as someone came to him and said, what is the greatest commandment? He would say to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That was the new radical standard. What he was saying to them is, you need to be so radically devoted to that standard that we automatically keep the law. 
See, we as Christians often say, well, I'm not bound to the law the same way they were in the Old Testament, so I can do what I want. I can live in any way I want. It's not a big deal. And what, what Christ was trying to get across to them was this new radical standard is that you have such a high standard because of your love for God that automatically the law is included in it. Automatically. If you ever find yourself in a situation that you're looking up at the demands of the law, we know that we're in sin. Not because we're under obligation to the law. Not because we're under obligation to keep the letter of the law. In fact, Scripture tells us that Christ kept it for us. And He fulfilled it completely. We're not under that obligation in the same way. But if we find ourselves looking up at the demands of the law in our, uh, and we're in our efforts to love God the way that we should and love people, something is wrong. Because the command to love God, the command to follow God, the command to love others builds in it the ability for us to go beyond the law. You say, what do you mean by that? Let me give you one example as we begin. In the Old Testament, the law was given that the people should give their first 10% of their increase. That's that's the standard. It was actually more complicated than that, and it was actually amounted to much more than 10%. But for the sake of argument, we talk about the tithe in the Old Testament as being 10%. That was the letter of the law. And it is true that tithe that is mentioned in the Old Testament was for Israel. And it's connected with the temple system. But the temple system doesn't, doesn't exist today because the, what Jesus Christ did on the cross replaced the temple system. So we're not under the temple law anymore. You say, why am I giving? Whew. When we look in Scripture, we see there is no New Testament command to tithe. We do see Scripture say to give cheerfully as God prospers you. And so many people ask the question, what, what should I give? Well, if we find ourselves, I believe if we find ourselves giving less than 10%, then are we really actually loving God properly? So the law continues to be a spotlight on our lives. It exposes our faith. It exposes our sin. It exposes our love for God or lack thereof. Say, oh, I love God. Then you can't even meet the minimum of the law when it comes to the area of giving. Do you really love God? When we find ourselves looking up at the demands of the law, we need to ask ourselves, am I really loving God? Am I really meeting the standard God has set for us? Because we have been set free by Christ not to break the law, but to live so far above its demands that we don't have to worry about having a speedometer. In this sermon, Jesus is giving a series of illustrations of what it meant to live above the law, what it meant to have a new kind of righteousness. And now he comes to the fourth illustration of their sinfulness in verse 33. The scribes and the Pharisees were so pious, so religious, that in their own mind they had elevated themselves. They had elevated themselves to the point of saying, I'm keeping the law perfectly. And that's the way they believed. If you remember, uh, Paul talked about himself and he says, as a Pharisee, I kept it all. In other words, they're saying, they, they, as Pharisees, they thought they did it. And Jesus comes along and in this, in this message begins to tell them, you know what? You don't even belong in my kingdom. Why? Because my standard is so 
far above yours. He begins talking about his standard. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, at the end of, verse of chapter 5, he tells them, as he begins concluding these, this train of thought, he tells them his standard. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, notice what it says there. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me ask you this question. Who qualifies for perfection? Nobody. Nobody on their own effort of human achievement can enter into the kingdom. Nobody on their own can enter into this point of perfection. Nobody can attain unto perfection. So the question is, where does this perfection come from? If it's only perfect people that get into heaven, where does this perfection come from? The perfection that you have to have to be in his kingdom, you cannot get unless it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that as when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Scripture uses the term that He imputes His righteousness upon us. In other words, He places His righteousness upon us. The perfection that you have to have to be in His kingdom and can't obtain is a gift of grace. And Jesus is trying in this sermon to get them to realize that they haven't made it and they need to look for a Redeemer. And then what he does later on, as we go through the Bible, we see later on in his ministry, he offers himself as a solution to their problem. The same thing is true for us. So what is this standard God has for us? Look, if you will, I don't have it on the screen, but look at Matthew chapter 5 and follow along as I read. In verse 33, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for it cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'll help us to understand this passage and the truth of it. Lord, I pray that you help us to be open to see areas in our lives where we're not living up to a standard of loving you the way that we should. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 33 through 37, Jesus confronts them about their lying hearts. He confronts them about their lying lips. Throughout Scripture, we see that what, what we say is important. In fact, James, when he goes through his whole statement about, about our tongue, notice what he says there. He says, we all stumble in many ways. And I would think we all would agree with that. But he says, notice what he says next. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. What is he saying there? He's saying it's so important that what we say, that if you can control your tongue, which comes from your heart, if you can control your tongue, then you're doing pretty well. You're going to be on the right track. It is needful in this day uh, for people to control their tongues and be truthful. Wouldn't it be nice in the world we live in to know the truth? Wouldn't it be refreshing that everyone you talk to tells the truth? The entire system of the world in which we live is built upon lying. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, well, it's not a big deal? As many of you know, I love sports, and I like listening to sports talk shows from time to time. And I was listening to one this week, and they were talking about college football coming up soon. And they were talking about a particular college football coach, and they said, you know, and the, the guy on the radio said this, well, you know, uh, everyone lies from time to time, and, some, and most of the time it's okay. 
And I thought, wow, as I was preparing for this message, I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? And, and we say, oh, that's horrible, but you know what? I'm sure many of you had said something similar at some point. And we, we live in a system that is built upon lying. After all, Jesus described Satan. He said, Satan is the father of the world, and Satan is the father of lies. Satan dictates and controls the world's system, and Satan is full of lies. I mean, just think about this. Think about your kids for a moment. What's the first thing they do when they're confronted with something they've done wrong? They, they desire and think about lying about it. Oh, goodness, how many times have I confronted my kids and the first time I say, did you do this? No. And then I find out later they did, and then it's like, why did you lie? Cause, and typically the answer is because I didn't want to get in trouble. Well, you just lied about it, and I found out so you're getting in bigger trouble. So maybe you should have told the truth. But that's our normal response. The truth is scarce. Everyone's guilty of lying. Business people, salesmen, clerks, lawyers, doctors, advertisers, teachers, reporters, writers, politicians, and even preachers. In fact, our whole society is built on a network of fabrication. We shade the truth, we cheat, we exaggerate, we tax dodge, we fail to keep our promises, we flatter for gain, we betray confidence, we make excuses, we tell half lies, we tell white lies, and on and on and on we go. The writer Chaucer said this, truth is the highest thing a man can experience. Daniel Webster said this, there is nothing as powerful as truth and often nothing as strange. During the time of Christ, the Jews had gotten so good at lying that they actually had created a system of lies. A system of lies that actually allowed them to stay in their mind safe in the law. Jesus begins to, in verses 33 through 37, cut through that facade of their system. Let's take a few minutes to look at what Jesus said and what he had to say about their lies. And the first thing I want to notice is he begins to teach the principle of the law. If you look at verse 33, he says again, and this is the way he works throughout this book, he's kind of reminding them of what the Old Testament said. He said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. First of all, this is not a statement that's included in the Old Testament. This is not a law per se. Uh, however, the principles that lead to this are there. If you notice in that passage, again, he says again, you have heard that it was said. He did not say something about the law because this exact command is not up here. Now, we're going to look at a passage where it says something uh, similar, but uh, uh, this, this was the first part is there. We'll look at that in a few moments, but they kind of added to it. So he's reminding of that. The word swear that you see in 33 and oath in 34 and 36 come from the same word. Swearing and not swearing as in cursing, but uh, making a, a promise. Oaths and also the same word for perjury also comes from the same idea. They all come from the same idea. An oath is simply this. It's making a statement and calling on God to witness to the truth of that statement. And it's invoking a curse from God if, in fact, you're not telling the truth. Saying uh, something like this. You say this maybe to people. I swear to God I'm telling the truth. What are you saying? You're saying, I promise that I'm telling the truth, and if I'm not, God will judge me. So I wasn't saying that. Well, that's what that phrase means. 
You go into a courtroom and you place your hand on a Bible and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. What you're saying is, I I, I promise I'll tell the truth and I don't. God is going to take care of me. You stand up to get married and you say a phrase similar to this, before God and these witnesses to your spouse, I take you. You're saying uh, this, Uh, you're saying that I will follow this and if I don't, God will deal with me. The Greek word for oath has the idea of binding something together, strengthening, so that your word is then strengthened by invoking God to attest the validity of your word. You're saying, uh, I, I promise to God that this is true. We see that in other places in Scripture. In Hebrews it says this, For people swear by something greater than themselves, in all their disputes an oath is final, for confirmation. In other words, when a man makes an oath or confirms his word, he calls on God, who is greater, to attest to the truthfulness. God is greater than me. You don't believe me, believe God. And I'm saying, God, I, I swear to God, this is what I'm saying. If two people were in a conflict, making an oath in God's name made it stronger. God also used oaths, and if you look in Hebrews, the next verse, it says this, So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchanging character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. In other words, what he's saying in that passage is, even God did this. God wanted to show men his unchanging nature, and since man needed an oath, since man needed a promise, he said, okay, I guarantee it with an oath. So even God used that. The reason God is making an oath is not because you have to have an oath to trust him. But he's making an emphatic statement of the urgency of what he's about to say. Throughout Scripture, we see oaths uh, used numerous times. Vows, sometimes they're called, sometimes they're called other things. Abraham made, made oaths, made vows. Isaac did, Jonathan did, David did, and many, many others throughout Scripture. What are they saying? They're coveting with someone to the truthfulness of their statement by calling on God to judge them if they fail. God knows that men are sinners. God knows the lying nature of men causes us to distrust each other. And so an oath is something that's taken in a serious situation. Take your Bibles. Uh, We'll come back to Matthew chapter 5, but look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we'll see in Matthew chapter 26 the negative use of an oath, of a promise. Look, if you will, at Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 69. We see when we come to 69, this is uh, Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial, and, and uh, he, he, uh, one of his disciples, Peter, is in the area, but he's not too close. And it says in verse 69, Now Peter was sitting outside of the courtyard, and the servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. So the first one comes along and says, hey, you you do Jesus. And he goes, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 71, and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it, notice what it says this time, with an oath. I do not know the man. So the next time comes along and they say, you know Jesus. And he goes, uh, I, I, basically, he says, I swear to God, I don't. What he's saying here is he's saying, I call on God to prove me wrong. Because I promise you, I didn't. 
know him. It goes on and says in 73, after a little while, while the bystanders came up and called to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. This third time comes along and he says, not only does he make an oath, but he says, I promise you, I swear to God, I don't know him, and if, and if I'm wrong, may God curse me right now. He takes it a little step further, and then if, we, if you've read the story, you know what happens next. The Bible says that the, 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 the rooster crowed, and Jesus had, had already told Peter that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now you know why when the rooster crowed, he wept bitterly. It was bad enough that he lied, but worse to confirm the lie by invoking God as his witness. And then, beyond that, to swear to God and to call down a curse from heaven if he's lying. He realized what he had done. You also remember through Scripture there was places where people made oaths or vows that were rash and didn't take the time to think through them. You think of it in Judges chapter 11, a man by the name of Jephthah, and he's, he's in, uh, he, he goes out and God gives him a victory and he says, he says, when I go into my house, whoever comes to greet me, whatever comes to greet me, I will offer as a sacrifice. And you remember the story where he comes and he makes a vow to that and he comes and his daughter comes out to greet him. And he... Uh, <laughs> Realize what he had done, a rash, stupid vow. On the other hand, you can see in places in Scripture where uh, oaths or vows were made in a, in a positive way. You can think of the story of Ruth where, where her mother-in-law says, you know, I've lost my husband, you've lost your husband who was my son, why don't, you, why don't you go back to your family? And she says to her, no, I vow that wherever you go, I will go. And she makes a promise, calling upon God and says, I will keep this. You know, God takes these promises very seriously. Notice what it says in Psalms. David is talking about, about who is going to have a relationship with God, and he says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? In other words, he's saying, Who's going to dwell with God? Who's going to have a relationship with God? Notice what he says next. He has a few different things. He says, who, He who has clean hands, pure heart. But then at the end of that verse, he says, And who does not swear deceitfully. In other words, what he's saying is, who, who is it that's going to be in the presence of God? One who, who, who keeps their promises, keeps their oaths. That was what we see when we look at this first statement back in Matthew chapter 5, when, when Jesus said to them, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform. It's these oaths. But the problem was, is the Jews, the, the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, had begun to pervert this teaching. That's the second thing we want to look at is the perversion of the tradition. They began to then, by tradition, pervert it. In verse uh, 33, it, it sounds great. Yes, keep your promises, keep your oaths, but like everything else, it was an illusion. There was two problems that started to creep in and, and became a part of what they did. First of all was the missing ingredient. The missing ingredient was that their system never told them when oaths were proper or how oaths should be taken. And so it led to frivolous swearing. They were swearing oaths for every little thing throughout their day. They were swearing by this and by that. They were swearing to this and to that. All the time swearing oaths indiscriminately, ad-libbing them, and taking them as common matter of, a common matter of conversation. 
In fact, we have information that goes back that says that in the ancient writings that their oaths were so complex and so elaborate that they had built in a way to lie and make it seem as if they were keeping their promises. You can see in verse 33, there doesn't seem to be any qualifications of how these oaths were to be done. I mean, imagine, if you will, for a moment, what Jesus starts to get into in verse 34, which we'll look at a moment from now. A guy comes up to you and says this. He says, I want you to know, my friend, I'm going to keep my word to you. He says, goes on, he says, I swear by heaven and earth. I swear by my head. That's a pretty strong statement. You know, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by the altar, I swear by the temple, I'll do it. You'd probably say, all right, I believe you. And then he'd go out and do something completely different. Say, so how, how is that possible? Because the next part of that is they had a misplaced emphasis. Notice in verse 33 it says in that passage, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform it to the Lord. That was their little catch. The little catch that the Jews had was, as long as you swore to the Lord, you had to do it. But if you swore to anything else, you didn't have to do it. You weren't obligated to it. You say, well, that's, that's horrible. We would never do anything like that. Let's, let's, for a few moments, go back to when you were a child. Okay? Some of you cannot remember that. Some of you, it was recent. But let's go back. You're on the playground. Okay? And you're playing with, your, with a group of friends and and uh, the, one of the friends has a, comes over to you and says, um, I want to tell you a secret, but you have to promise you won't tell anyone. And you say, I promise. Okay? As soon as they tell you the thing, you go over and you run over to your other friend and you say, I've got to tell you something. You tell them. The first friend comes to you and says, you told them, how could you do that? And you look at him and you said, I know I told you that, but I had my fingers crossed the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, okay, you say, I don't do that anymore, I hope not. But that's exactly what they were doing. They were saying, well, you know what, I I know I promise, but hey, here's here's the thing. That's what they were doing. They would swear by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by their head, by, by the temple, and they would just go out and do the very opposite thing. How did they get that? Well, if you look at Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind by him, to himself by a pledge, he must not break his word. But notice, they would emphasize to the Lord. Anything else was fair game, but they would emphasize to the Lord. Why is that? Why would they do that? Because if you're going to be righteous on your own, and if you're trying to make yourself righteous, if you're saying, I've got to live by this law, and if I break this law, I'm in trouble, then what you have to do is you have to invent a system where you can keep it. So they created this system. You know, we, we lie. And we want to lie. Why? Because we're liars. And so we find a way around it. Today we'll say, well, it's just a little white lie. Or it's a socially acceptable lie. And that's what they were doing. But notice how Jesus begins to deal with it. Look at Matthew chapter 5 again, and look at verse 34. He says to them, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. And you know what he begins to do? He begins to, to point out to them the fact that all of these things that they were swearing by were all things that ultimately pointed back to God. And he says, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Now, obviously, this was before hair coloring. <laughs> Some of you have made your hair wet or black or green or pink or yellow or whatever color you happen to see out there. He says, you can't make your hair. But what he, what he is saying is this. He's saying this. God is in control of your head, not you. He's saying God is in control, uh, is in heaven, not you. God is on earth and over all the earth. God is sovereign over Jerusalem. What, what Jesus is saying is this, is, is He is all and in all. You can't avoid God. You know, there aren't any compartments where you can say, I can lie over here because God's not present, but I'll tell the truth when God is. You can't do that. They had, they had gotten so extreme with this. If you'll take your Bible and look at Matthew chapter 23, later on in Jesus' ministry, he addresses this again. In Matthew chapter 23, look what he says. In, in Matthew chapter 23 is when he is, he is uh, giving his woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And he's saying to them over and over again, woe or judgment be upon you. And he says in verse, uh, let's see, verse 16, notice what he says there. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. See, he's doing this, they're doing the same thing. They're saying, well, I can swear by God and it's something, but if I swear by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by an oath. You know, they're, they're even making it more uh, insane here and adding to it. Notice what he says in verse 16. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if he swears by a gift that is on the altar, it is bound by the oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? What is he saying to them? He's, he's saying, you know, you, you're making all these stipulations to allow yourself to, to lie and to cheat. Isn't it amazing what a system they had invented? They were playing games with the truth. Here they were trying to show everyone in the world that they were righteous. And what Jesus is saying to them is, you are a bunch of liars. You know, and we can do that too. William Barclay, an author, he, uh, he said it very well. I'm going to read you this quote. It's a little longer, so, so uh, listen to it if you can. It says this, Here is the great eternal truth. Light cannot be divided into compartments in which some of which God is involved and others of which He is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the home. There cannot be one standard of conduct in the church and another standard of conduct in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life and in every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in His name, He hears all words. And there cannot be anything, any such thing as the form of words which evades bringing God into any transaction. He will regard all promises as sacred and if, if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. You know, God hates lies. Half-truths are lies. White lies are lies. God hates lies. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 20, and I could bring in numerous verses. I had a bunch of them I was going to show you, and I limit it to this one. He says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Lying lips are abomination to the Lord. God hates lies. In fact, what does the Bible tell us in Revelation? It tells us that all liars will find their place in the lake of fire which burns forever. 
What Jesus is saying is, if you are a liar, you cannot be in my kingdom. You say we're all liars. And that's the point. That's the point that the scribes and the Pharisees were missing out on, is we are all liars and we can't get into heaven on our own. The only way that we can get into heaven is having those lies washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We all have that. And that's where we come to the last point we look at about this section here, and that is the perspective of the divine teaching. What was Jesus' perspective? If you look back at Matthew chapter 5, he tells them all these things. He says you can't make O's and leave God out of it. You can't segment God from, from the secular. He goes on, he says in verse seven, uh, 37, he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. What he's saying is everything we sh- say should be an oath. When I say, yes, I'll do something, whether you had a contract or not, you should do it. When you're speaking, whether you swore in a Bible or not, you should tell the truth. What he's doing is he's calling us to live far beyond the law. That's what he was trying to get the point across to them over and over again. Everything we say is not just uh, as solemn if we say, may God strike me dead if it's not true. Everything is. Everything is not uh, as serious only when you say, I swear on my mother's grave. Everything he's saying is true and should be true in the words that we say. The fact that we swore an oath should never be what makes us truthful. The fact that we love God should. The fact that we are sons and daughters of the true and living God should make us be people who are truthful. Now, nobody lives like that. Lives serve as a lubricant to keep the gears of society turning. But it shouldn't be that way among us. It shouldn't be. What lies do for the world, the gospel should do for us. The people of the world lie to defend themselves in tricky situations. We recognize that we're guilty. We're guilty, and so we don't cover up our sin, but we trust in Christ for our defense. When Jesus stood at the cross and uh, and on trial before the cross, and they said, have you done all these things? What does Scripture say? He opened not his mouth. He didn't try to defend himself. You know, the people of this world uh, lie to make money. God proved on the cross that he would provide everything that we need. So we trust in him to provide our daily needs, not just our eternal security. The people of this world lie to maintain social relationships, but as Christians we need to confess our sins one to another, pray for one another, forgive one another even as we were forgiven. The question for you is how truthful are you? Do we tell little white lies? Do we exaggerate on purpose? Are we honest in business? Are we honest with the IRS? Do we say we'll do something, but we don't? Are we honest even to the point of our own hurt? Are we honest about our sins and our struggles? Can people around us trust us that what we say is reliable? Or do we only tell the truth if it's in a contract? Do we attempt to deceive in every way we can? You know, we can make a number of excuses for why we deceive, but every one of them shows 
a lack of faith in God? Do we trust God? The last thing I want to look at in just a few moments here then is what is the making of an oath? The question is asked then, what about vows? What about oaths? What about contracts? Should we avoid them? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think he's giving a prohibition against swearing vows. It doesn't fit the tone of the sermon and it contradicts other scripture. For example, in Romans chapter 1, it's one of many examples where Paul says, for God is my witness. I think it's there. Genesis chapter 9, this is a passage where uh, Noah and his family have come out of the ark and, and God comes to them and he says, Behold, I will establish my covenant, my vow with you. God himself makes vows and he says in that passage, I, I will never again destroy the world with a flood. God makes vows. Swearing a vow can be a loving, uh, loving towards those with whom we must deal with, who maybe don't know our character. Should we make vows, promises, contracts? Should we swear under oath? Should we make wedding vows? Yes, of course we should. But we should never look at that vow as our reason for being honest. We should be honest whether we swore on the Bible or not. Our conscience should be bound to speak the truth in every situation because we're sons of our Father who is the truth, not because we swore an oath. Everything we say should be a vow. When I say yes, I should mean it. When I say no, I should mean it. Why? Because I love my father, not because I said a vow. Now, it might be that there's times when you make promises. For example, if I was to uh, go and buy a house, I would sign a contract. Okay, That's a verbal agreement. Okay, but uh, I don't need to... It doesn't mean if I don't write that that I can lie in every other situation. Okay, if I go to uh, Jonathan Rios and say, Jonathan, I need a ladder. Can I borrow a ladder from you? And he says, fine, I need you to sign a verbal agreement that you return it to me. Well, I hope he wouldn't require I hope that he would understand when I say, yes, I'll return it. I mean, yes, I'll return it. Because we're truthful people. The principle is that love frees us to live beyond the law, not below it. Look, if you will, for a moment as we close at the cross. God told us in the Old Testament, He said, I will punish sin. And so He did at the cross. But He also said, I will forgive sin. And so He did at the cross. That was an expensive thing to say. To say He would forgive sin and that we'd punish sin meant only uh, that he would have to take the punishment of sin on himself, but he did. He kept his, his, his promise. He kept his vow. Let me ask you today, are you a person who are, is a person of your word? Are you truthful? Are you honest in all dealings? Is that an area you struggle with? It's, it's interesting that he uh, jumps from the last few we've looked at, he looked at lust, and then he looked at divorce, and he jumps to this one. Because it's not just when we make a written agreement in marriage, it's not just uh, other things like that. It's, a, it's in every prospect of life, do we keep our, our promise? Do we keep our word? And that's what he's saying to us. Let's pray.